Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Many of you here today may be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is said that sermon was so frightening that you could see the fingernail marks of the people who were sitting in the pews as they grasped the pew in front of them because they were so fearful of what was being said. Of course, God used Jonathan Edwards mightily for the great awakening that happened the first Great Awakening in 1740s, where the entire eastern colonies were in revival. It's often thought that Edwards took great satisfaction in afflicting that kind of turmoil on those who were listening, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jonathan Edwards did not enjoy those kinds of messages, but rather he felt a deep sense of obligation to those whom the Lord had called him to lead. And what really necessitated that fiery sermon was something called the Halfway Covenant. Now, the Halfway Covenant was a covenant, as its name suggests, was an early Puritan attempt to keep people under the influence of the church. And so, even though they were not believers... So, so consumed with numbers attending, the church that Jonathan Edwards was called to lead were baptizing unbelievers. They were so consumed with keeping people in there, with making sure the people kept attending, that they were even willing to baptize unbelievers. So consumed again, those who they were baptizing were even barred from the Lord's Supper, but yet they were baptizing them anyway. And despite his consistent teaching and preaching, those in support of the halfway covenant pressed even for the unbelievers to partake in the Lord's Supper, clearly against Scripture. Ultimately, he was dismissed as the pastor because of his refusal to allow unbelievers to partake in the Lord's Supper. Hard to believe, isn't it? Probably the greatest theologian in the early American church dismissed from his church because he would not follow what the Bible said he was commanded to do. And yet, that's what happened. Contrary to popular opinion, Edwards was not happy or pleased to preach such a stinging message, but he was preaching for their very souls. And to him, that was far more important than whatever they decided to do against him. We must understand that Jonathan Edwards' passionate love for God and his passionate love for the flock was the reason he employed every tool available to him, every metaphor to plead for people, to plead for their souls as sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that same concern for the flock that was expressed by Jonathan Edwards joins him with the author of Hebrews. 
who wrote to the Hebrews some 1,700 years before that. It's that same passion for the flock. It's that same desire to love God and love the people of God that the author of Hebrews now moves into this fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. The stakes were identical. Heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. And the symptoms, though not identical, were very similar. There was a declining regard for the church's authority in their lives. Secondly, there is a willfulness on their part to define their relationship to the church in their own terms. I know this is what God says, but here's what I believe. I know this is what the word of God says, but here's what I'm going to do anyway. And in some cases, they were actually even quitting the church altogether. It's to those, that same passionate, as Jonathan Edwards had to his congregation, that the author of Hebrews preaching to his congregation, and for me today, preaching to to you, to our congregation here, is the same desire. There's a warning here in this next group of verses that we need to take very seriously as the people of God. You will recall that this entire epistle is written to those individuals that had made a profession of Christ, but are now tempted to fall away. They're tempted to leave their profession of Christ, leave the people of God, leave the church, and go back to Judaism, which is where they were saved out of. And the primary reason we find is that they were facing intense persecution. But there were other reasons as well. So the writer of Hebrews has set out to exhort them. First of all, he wants them to be all in. You got to make a decision for Christ. Then once you make a decision for Christ, you got to remain in Christ. Now, in every way, all the way through, remember the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, he's been explaining theologically and doctrinally why Christ is better. He is, in every way, he is superior to everything that they had in the Old Covenant. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the priest. He's even better than the high priest. He's better than the Levitical system. He offers a better sacrifice. He mediates a better covenant. He spent 10 chapters explaining to you why that was so important. Christ provides everything the old covenant couldn't provide. Forgiveness of sins forever. Access to God forever. Eternal salvation forever. All of these things the old covenant could only point to, because it was only a shadow of, it's only partial. But with Christ, it is now full. Finally, after 10 chapters of theology and doctrine, the author of Hebrews now moves to demand a response. So beginning in Verse 19 through verse 21, the author says, this is what it looks like then. If you were listening in those first 10 chapters, this is what it should look like now in your life. And so he says, look at verse 19 in your your text. Again, he says, therefore, based on everything that I've just told you, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is the flesh, is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He says, you should have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of their faith in what Christ has done on their behalf as their great high priest. He said, the high priest before could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And that was after having to confess his own sins before he could go and confess the sins of the people. He said, but now, now, because of the new covenant, because of what Christ has done for you, you should have confidence to boldly approach the throne of grace. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done, and you have access to him, not once a year, but forever and full, all that all you need to do is close your eyes in prayer and you are in the throne room of God spiritually. What a difference between what they had grown up with, what they were leaving, and what they have now in Christ. And he is saying, why would you ever want to go back to that? This is what you have. So then he says in verse 22, let us draw near. That's an invitation. How should we draw near? With a sincere heart. No ulterior motives. Not because of what we think God will do for me. I don't draw near to God because I think it'll make my life easier. I don't draw near to God because I want all my troubles to go away in my life. I draw near to God because of what he has done for me. He sent his son to die on that cross. My sins. Totally undeserved. Totally unmerited. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He loved us. That's why we draw near. Not only should we draw near, we should hold fast. Verse 23, hold fast to the confession of hope. Here again is another reminder. Don't stray away. Don't give up. Don't go back to that shadow. Stay where you're at. Verse 24, then let us consider. Consider whom? One another. Stir each other up to love and to good deeds. The author of Hebrews is saying, it's decision time. Quit straddling the fence. You got to be all in. You can't just do this halfway. There is no partial salvation. This is nothing new. We can see this all throughout Scripture. Keep your place in Hebrews. I just want to show you how God has been really saying the same thing all along. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31, would you? Deuteronomy, we'll just look at a few of these. There are many more. I just picked a few. Deuteronomy 31, beginning at verse 15. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 15. The Lord appeared in a tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. That word forsake means to desert or abandon. God is saying, Moses, I'm about to call you home, and when I do, your people, my people, are going to turn away from me, and they're going to begin to worship other gods. 
They're going to fall away. They're going to forsake me. They're going to desert me. They're going to abandon me, even though I've redeemed them from the bonds of slavery, even though I've brought them to the promised land, the first opportunity they have, they're going to desert me. So then he says here, uh, then my anger will be kindled against them, verse 17, in that day I will forsake them and hide my face and they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do for they will turn to other gods. They will leave me, they will forsake me for something else. Now, therefore, write this song for yourself. Teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. This is something called prophetic past tense, which, in other words, God is saying it even though it hasn't happened, but he's saying it in a way as if it has already happened. It's so certain that it's going to happen that he's stating as if it already has. Turn to Joshua 24. One more book to write, if you would. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 15. So here we had God with Moses back in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 31 saying, Choose life. Choose me. Don't play the harlot. Don't chase that. Don't abandon me. Don't desert me. Stay with me. Prove your faithfulness. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Look at Joshua's response then. You will not be able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake him, if you abandon him, if you desert him and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do to you harm and consume you. Do you see that word consume? Same word in Deuteronomy 31. He will consume you after he has done good to you. Turn to 1 Kings 18. Keep going to your right. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Here we have Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I've not troubled Israel, but you 
your father's house have because you have what? Forsaken. You have abandoned. You have deserted the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the bells. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message from all the sons of Israel, brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Let's look one more here in the New Testament as we're working our way back. Matthew chapter 7. We have looked at this many times, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Deuteronomy 31, God is saying, choose life. Joshua 24, choose now whom you will serve. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Jesus, choose the way for your soul to go. Choose which way. Beloved, all throughout Scripture, the Lord requires a stance from us. We must choose to worship. We must choose to serve and obey God and reap the rewards of eternal life, or we will choose the broader path which leads to destruction. Now, every single person who hears the gospel message of Jesus Christ really only has three options, don't they? They'll either hear the truth and believe unto salvation. Secondly, they will choose not to believe and remain lost, or they'll do what many in the church were doing in the book of Hebrews and are still doing today, and that's they'll make a profession of faith and then fall away once the demands of the Christian life become too hard. And those that fall away apostatize. That's what that word means. They fall away. They fall away. They've come very close to salvation, but they won't go all the way in. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you must be all in. You can't just keep straddling the fence. You can't say you love Jesus and then live as if he doesn't even exist in your orbit. You can't say, I love Jesus, and live your life carnally. There's something, there's a disconnect here somewhere in your life. And so he urges them here again to be real, to secure their salvation. Don't go back. Don't go back. Jesus said in John 8, 30, many believed in his name. And then in verse 31, he said, if you continue in my word, you are mine. John 15, 6, the true branch abides. The branch that's attaching itself for a little while never bears any fruit. The vine dresser chops it off, burns it, consumes it with fire, if you will. The true branch abides and bears fruit. You were looking at that in Sunday school. So he's really demanding here for these professing believers, choose life. 
Choose Jesus Christ. But you cannot do that halfway. You must be all in. He's asking to come all the way into Christ. Then in verse 25, remember, he begins to contrast those who continue in their faith, thus demonstrating genuine salvation, verse 25, with those who abandon. True saving faith is enduring faith. The entire book of Job is about enduring faith, incidentally, even in the midst of intense trials and temptations. What are we to make of those who make a profession of faith but then fall away from the church never to return? What should we make of them? This verse isn't talking about someone who occasionally misses church when it says, do not forsake the assembly. He's not talking about somebody by the providence of God. They have a sick child. They have a, uh, you know, a, an elderly parent they need to take care of. They were sick themselves. Perhaps they had to work that. I mean, there's lots of reasons why God in his providence, right? We have to miss church sometimes. What he's talking about here are people who have forsaken the body of Christ. They have deserted, that's what that word means, abandoned the body of Christ. They have no desire for God. They have no desire for his word. They have no desire for his people. Is it fair to ask, are these people even saved? Did God save them simply so they could live the remainder of their lives as carnal Christians? Is that even possible? Is there even a biblical category for that kind of Christian? Those are hard questions. A genuine commitment to Christ is reflected in a genuine commitment for his church. They will not forsake the assembly. Again, that means desert or abandon. That word forsake, Jesus used on the cross in Matthew 27. Remember when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me? That's what that word means. Paul uses that word in 2 Timothy 4. Demas has deserted me. He has forsaken me. Later in verse 16 in chapter 4, he says the same thing. All have forsaken me. All have deserted me. In this verse, it's the clear abandonment of God's people in the local assembly where God's word is preached and the gospel is declared openly and clearly. But it's much more than that, my friends. It's not just about missing church. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Abandonment of an assembly where there's the clear exposition of the Bible, where sound doctrine is taught, and where the people strive to live out the truths of the gospel and fellowship together, and then you decide you want to opt out from that clear teaching. You want to opt out from that preaching. You want to opt out from that fellowship. Is interconnected, not just with abandonment of that church, but it says something about your heart with Christ. That's really the bigger issue. That's really what he's going to warn against next. He's saying it's not just missing church. It's what it says about your heart, beloved. That's the real issue. Forsaking the assembly of ourselves together is a much more serious matter from the standpoint of what that says about the condition of our hearts. It speaks of turning one's back not only on the institution of the church, which Christ bought and paid for with his own blood, but it also denies the importance of who Jesus Christ is 
in the personal involvement of your own life. Is he the priority in your life or not? Is God's word the priority? Is Jesus Christ the primary, primary person in your life? That's a large part of what our writer is saying. He says, turning your back on all of that says something. And one of the dangers of forsaking the assembly is that there's a very real and clear connection to apostasy. See, once you decide that you don't need to do what God just said in verse 25, for do not forsake the assembly, it's a double negative, which means never ever do that or keep on going, do not forsake. Once you've convinced yourself that you don't need to do that, I don't need to be around God's people, I can do this at home. I don't need to listen. I don't need to listen to that sermon. I can pull up something on the internet all by myself. But see, the problem is, is that slowly but surely, we just quit doing it. We replace it with something else. And once we forsake, then pretty soon we're not doing any of those things. We're not in God's word. We're not around God's people. We have no desire to be in fellowship with before we know it, we're apostatizing. We have fallen away completely. We've replaced God with something else. So look at verse 26 now in our text. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So here's verse 26, the first part of that, point number one. In your notes, after receiving the truth, deliberate and habitual rebellion against God is the mark of an apostate. After receiving the truth, deliberate and habitual rebellion against God is the mark of an apostate. What we have in here. In the first part of this verse is a definition of the word apostasy. It's what it means. It's the marks of someone who will fall away. An apostate is someone who's received the truth and then rejected the truth. He has received the truth totally and then rejected it totally. That's what an apostate is. Notice also this is not someone who's never heard the truth of the gospel. This is someone who is connected. This Apostate to apostatize is reserved for those who have made a profession of faith in Christ and are connected to the church. That's what an apostate is. Notice that word knowledge in our verse. There are two words in the Greek for knowledge. One is gnosis, which means like a general knowledge, like I know what an airplane is and I know somewhat how it goes. It's a general knowledge. And then there's epigenosis, which is a deep knowledge or a deep understanding or a personal knowledge and understanding. That's the word that's used here in our text. So what that means is an apostate is someone who doesn't just have a basic knowledge of the truth. They have a deep understanding of the truth. That word truth is referring to the gospel It's referring to the new covenant. 
is referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that's involved in salvation. They had heard the truth of the gospel. Their minds had been enlightened and they understand it completely. They've been in church. They've professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've sat under the clear exposition of God's word, just as the author had been given them in the first 10 chapters. They knew that Christ is God's only once and for all sacrifice. They knew that because of his perfect sacrifice that the old covenant had been abolished and done away with. They knew the truth about the person of Christ. They knew he was their great high priest. They had seen God's transforming power work in the lives of other people who were attending the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then they just walk away. They opt out. They abandon. They desert God's people. And then eventually they abandon and they desert Christ. Notice carefully that this falling away is deliberate. Notice in your text here. If we sin, what's the next word? Willfully. Deliberately. He's not talking about those sins that we commit Every day, he's talking about, he's not talking about those sins. That's 1 John 1, 9, right, if we confess our sins. God has already made provision for all of that. He is talking about this sin, the sin of apostasy, this sin of deliberately opting out, falling away from God, choosing something other than Christ when you have heard and said you believed and made a profession of Christ and then still said, nah. That's too much. That's too much. That word, willfully, acousias, means by my own decision. It's the sin that's all planned out. It's deliberate, intentional act of sin. I've been there, studied it, I get it, I know it, I don't buy it. And then walk into it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. This is very similar, isn't it, to the warning we got back here beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who've once been enlightened or illuminated and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, there's our word apostasy, it is what? Impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him and shame. To consider all the evidence, to be part of a Christ, of Christianity just on a superficial basis, to come to church but not be all in, to paint yourself with the veneer of spirituality so that you feel good about yourself, but yet never really surrendering your heart to Christ. And then to just walk away. That's what he's talking about. It's deliberate. It's intentional. The other thing is it's habitual. If we continue sinning, in other words, if we continue doing what we're already doing, this is a present tense. Keep doing more of this, even through today. This isn't a one-time sin. This is this continual sin of apostasy. To forsake the only means of grace available to us, then we've become an apostate. And apostasy is so deceptive, beloved. This is the hard part. 
Because it starts off with something very small, like, it's, it's just one Sunday. That kid's got a game. It was late night last night. Things are really rough at work. I need the extra rest. I really got to get my lawn mowed. That boat's got to be put away. It starts off with substituting your time with God for something else. And then pretty soon it's not one Sunday or two Sundays, but then I'm, I'm only here half the time. And then I'm here once in a while. And then eventually I'm not here at all. And I convince myself, well, I, I don't really need to do that. I'll just watch it on TV. I, I can study at home. I can, but you know what? It just doesn't happen, does it? And sooner or later, they just fall away. We question ourselves. So how can that be? That person was in leadership of the church. They seemed like they were so involved and they were, they were so passionate about Christ. What happened? That's how deceptive it is. So point number one, an apostate then is someone who, after receiving the truth deliberately and habitually, rebels against God. They sin against God is what it literally says. Now look at the results of apostasy in the second part of verse 26 here. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Point number two, if we reject Christ and the gospel of the new covenant, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Notice here the real damage done when we willfully, deliberately, habitually sin by falling away from our profession of faith. The author of Hebrews has been crystal clear about the need for sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He spent two chapters, three really, eight, nine, and almost all of ten telling you why we needed a sacrifice for our sins and why Christ's perfect sacrifice was far better than any of the other sacrifices. He even said in Hebrews 10, 4, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There must be a sacrifice. And the only sacrifice for your sin is the perfect sacrifice that Christ gave on the cross. There is no other sacrifice. If you reject that, that sacrifice, what remains? Remember, he's speaking to professing Christians who have come out of Judaism, and now they're tempted to go back to that old sacrificial system, which they had just learned about was just a shadow. It was just a partial. He's saying, if you go, turn around and go back to that system, then you're returning to a system that cannot remove your sin. Why would you want to leave what you have now and go back to something that has no practical value for you? other than it's easier to go with the flow. My friends, if your sins are not forgiven, then you cannot come into the presence of God. And if, if your sins are not forgiven, you are not saved. And if you're not saved, you are now an enemy, an adversary of God. You're at enmity with God. You're at war. And you've rejected your only means of forgiveness. If a man turns his back on Jesus Christ then there is no sacrifice available for their sins. Beloved, the sin of apostasy is much more deceptive, much more devastating than people think. Look at our last point, point number three, verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume 
the adversaries. Point number three, there's a terrifying expectation of judgment for those who reject Christ. This thing is certain. If you reject Christ, you will face judgment. What awaits those who deliberately choose the sin of apostasy against the one who came for their salvation? A fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the adversaries of God. I don't want to be an adversary of God. I never want to be an adversary. I never want God to consider me at war with him or an enemy of his or an adversary of him. Because the Bible tells me God is a consuming fire. I don't want to be in that position. I hope you don't either. But in Christ, we're no longer at war with God because Christ has brought us true peace. We are reconciled with God the Father. Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. So those who reject Christ are at war with God and therefore his enemies. It may be a popular teaching outside of the church, but there's no way to get around the clear teaching that there's eternal judgment for sinners who do not choose Christ. I know that's not a very popular message today, but that is what the Word of God says. Hell is a real place. Judgment is a real thing. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That seems pretty clear. The eternal fire was prepared for Satan and his angels who rebelled against God, who apostatized, they fell away, and rejected the truth. What a contrast to those who embrace Christ by faith. Jesus said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. Where I will be, you will be with me forever. I know there's a tendency to think that when it comes to God's judgment, that it's his, all of his wrath is in the Old Testament. And now we've got this newer, kinder, gentler Jesus. That somehow we've got a new, kinder, gentler God when it comes to the issue of judgment. But let me say this. God does not delight in having to dispense his judgment. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come. To repentance. But God does not relinquish our responsibility to choose Christ, to remain faithful and obedient. You have a responsibility in this as well. We are all responsible to Him to turn from self and to turn to His Son alone for salvation. So, my friends, let's recap quickly. What's the mark of an apostate? This is someone, after receiving the truth, deliberate, habitual rebellion against God. That's the mark of an apostate. What are the results if we apostatize? We reject Christ and the gospel, the new covenant, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. What is certain about apostasy? There is a terrifying expectation of judgment. The sin of apostasy is much more deceptive and devastating than what most people think. It's easy to be deceived into justifying and forsaking and abandoning or deserting the people of God. But it has happened so often that occasional forsaking turns into a real abandonment, a real desertion, and becomes habitual. 
Now, it's sin itself because we're rebelling against God's clear direction. But that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is what it says about our hearts, that we've allowed something other than God to be primary in our life. We are worshiping something all the time. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. Once we reject Christ, we rejected the only means of salvation we have. My friend, I pray that you would choose Christ. If you've never made that decision, I pray today would be the day that you make that decision. That you go all the way in. Don't just come up to the gate. Don't just come up to the narrow gate, peek over the edge, and say maybe someday, maybe later, but not now. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Go all the way in. Surrender it all to Christ. Become a child of the King. And my friends, if you've already made that faithful decision, take this warning very seriously. Take this warning very seriously for those who have professed Christ but have not went all in. And how dangerous it is to start believing that you can ignore some of God's commandments and that it won't lead to you just walking away from God. Again, we're talking about an occasion. We're talking about your heart. We're talking about the condition of your heart. Choose Christ. Choose life. Choose to remain steadfast, worshiping, serving, and in fellowship together with his children and his children. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. Father, these kind of messages are difficult. They're difficult, Lord, because we need to hear them, and we know our own hearts so well. We know our own hearts, Lord, and we may be able to deceive others, but when we really look, when we really look at our hearts, Lord, we know we have this tendency. We have a tendency to put ourselves ahead of everything. We have a tendency to justify why we do the things we do that are clearly contrary to your word. We understand, Lord, that once we start justifying sinful things, we could eventually fall into apostasy, which is what we heard about today. Lord, I pray those here today would be reminded, Lord, from the truth of your word, to remain diligent. Remain faithful. Be all in. Lord, not, not to fall into the temptation of this world, Lord. Not to justify not being in your word, not being around your people, not being connected. But rather, Lord, to surrender. Go all in. And trust in you to guide, lead, and direct us for your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray.